welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Um, I know many people are out this morning traveling. Um, we should definitely be in prayer for one another, especially with um, some of the strikes going on on Monday, that everyone would just be safe in their travels, that the Lord would protect them and bring them back to us safely. We do miss them all. If you would, please, um, if you haven't already, open to Genesis 3, and we're going to continue in our study of this book. So far in Genesis, we have rejoiced in a good God who created a good world, and then He entered into a relationship with humanity. The goodness of God in creation has called us to worship Him, to say that He is worthy of praise. Then in chapter 3, sorrow enters this world because of the rebellion of mankind and threatens to undo the good world that God created. But in the face of human rebellion, God demonstrates grace, which is we define as unmerited favor. God demonstrates grace. God approaches sinful humanity in the garden, promising them a redeemer, and then mixing the joy of earth with pain to draw sinful man back to himself. The grace of God, even in the fall of mankind, calls us to worship Him. Each time we gather together, the point of our gathering is worship. Worship can be defined as treasuring God above all things. Treasuring God above all things. This is why we gather together. We come together to be reminded and to publicly proclaim together that we treasure God above all all things we greet one another in love before the service as an act of worship because we love god we read the words of god publicly as worship we pray to our father as worship the preacher publicly proclaims that god is worthy to be treasured as an act of worship and those who hear they listen and rejoice in god as their treasure all as an act of worship. And then we fellowship together here at Agape after the service so that you all, so that we all have the opportunity to encourage one another that God truly is worthy of treasuring above all things. That's why we come together. As we open the word this morning, um, please realize that the purpose of the words proclaimed to you is to call you to worship God. Jesus says in John 4.23 that God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. We are going to look closely at the truth this morning, and I hope you have the truth in front of you so that you can validate what I'm saying and can rejoice together with me in what we're going to look at. So we are going to fill our minds with the truth about God and this world that He's created. We're going to do that this morning. But that truth cannot just stay in our minds. God must be loved and adored in the Spirit. 
The truth has not reached its target until your heart rejoices in the God who is being revealed. So the the point that I was trying to emphasize is that when we gather and we open the Word, we're not just filling our minds with facts about God that can just stay in our minds. The point is that those facts would make the journey down I would say, you know, the 12-inch journey in America, but, you know, it's like a couple centimeter journey down to the heart. And that we would leave changed each Sunday. And I'm not saying that necessarily every Sunday there is going to be some huge sin that you've been hiding that you just have to, like, leave at the altar and leave it there and, and deny it. Instead, that each Sunday we should leave worshiping. Each Sunday, that's the goal, and that it would that worship would continue in your private study and in your private devotion all week long. That is what I'm trying to emphasize. But my fear is that many Christian in, Christians enter churches just like ours, and they fill their heads with knowledge, and their hearts are filled with pride and hardness. 1 Corinthians 8 warns us that biblical knowledge on its own puffs up. That's what it says. It says that if it's just knowledge, if you're just filling your head with knowledge, it puffs up. It makes religious people proud. He then says, but love builds up. He's talking about the love for the people of God, but that has to start with a love for God first. The passage goes on to say, if anyone imagines that he knows something, like, oh, I've got this figured out, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. That's what the passage says. If you think you've got it figured out, then you don't know it as you should. If you walk away from hearing the Scriptures with religious pride in your heart, then you have failed to hear and learn and understand the Word of God. Verse 3 in that passage says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so we must focus on the point of hearing the word that it is to increase in love for God. To grow in treasuring Him above all things. To worship Him. Are there a lot of other things that come out of that? Absolutely. But the foundation of all activity of everything we do must be this worship, this treasuring of God above all things. So I hope it's clear that the goal of preaching at Agape has not been to entertain you or impress you with the preacher's knowledge or even give you three tips for getting through the coming week. Because if that was our goal, we've been failing miserably. Instead, the goal of preaching is to call God's people to worship God in spirit and in the truth. It's both, not one or the other. So with this in mind, let's focus our attention on Genesis 3, verses 20 through 24, and the three pictures of grace that are presented there. We've just learned in weeks past that God's created the world. Adam and Eve are in the garden They are tempted by the serpent and they fall. God confronts them in their fallen condition. He speaks grace, but there's also consequences. There's pain 
And verse 19 ends with, You shall return to dust, for you came from the dust. So this is a proclamation that Adam and Eve were both going to die. And that is where we jump in at verse 20. Let's read together. Verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray and ask God for His blessing. Heavenly Father, we, we need You to meet us this morning as we look into Your Word. Father, do not allow us to just fill our minds, but instead would You pierce to the depths of our hearts so that we can, can cut away through the Word, through the Spirit, that our pride, bitterness, anger, doubt, fear, anxiety that these things would be cut away and so that we can have life and joy in You. Help us to drop the things that are cluttering up our hands so that we can grasp onto You and cling to You as our treasure, the thing we treasure above all else. Would You do that in us today through Your Word? Amen. The first picture of grace is Adam naming his wife Eve. Genesis 3, 19 ends with God declaring that Adam and Eve would one day die. It must have been a terrible moment for Adam and Eve as the gravity of the rebellion sunk in. Now they would both experience physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual pain in this life. And at the end of their painful days, they would then die. But verse 20 reveals something unexpected. When God first approached the man in the midst of his sin, Adam had acted like a, like a cornered animal, blaming God and his wife for everything that was wrong. But in verse 20, it seems like something has changed in Adam. It seems like Adam has heard the voice of God and is responding to the grace of God in faith. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve comes from the Hebrew word for life. Adam names his wife life or life giver. Verse 19 has just ended with the words, to dust you shall return, meaning Adam and Eve would both physically die. But Adam has thought upon the grace and promise of God and names his wife life as an act of faith. Adam must have been thinking about God's words to the serpent and God's words to the woman, promising that the serpent would one day do battle with the woman's offspring and that the woman would have pain in bearing children. The promises of God are all that Adam had to go by. There's nothing in Scripture to give us the idea that Adam and Eve had already had children. Everything indicates that Adam and Eve were the only humans in chapter 3, which means that at this point, Adam had never even witnessed 
human birth. He probably only had a vague idea of how a child could even be born. But with no first-hand experience of human birth, Adam believes the promises of God and names his wife Eve, or life, as an act of faith. I believe the grace of God at this moment was drawing Adam back to God. Please remember that that Old Testament believers were saved from the wrath of God the same way you and I are saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 2 verse 8 teaches us that by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by the grace of God and through faith in the heart of the believer. God first does something. He pours out His unmerited or undeserved favor on sinful rebels, giving them ears to hear and eyes to see His glory. And the rebel drops his weapons and bends the knee to this Lord of glory, hoping and trusting in His promises. Old Testament believers didn't have as much revelation as we do. God has progressively revealed more of who He is to mankind, but the requirement for salvation from the wrath of God has always been faith in the promises of God, which is hope and trust in His words given up to until that point. That is how they were saved as well. Faith in His promises revealed to them. Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 2 gives us both the definition of faith and the assurance that Old Testament believers were saying by this same faith. Chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. An assurance of things hoped for. He's talking about hoping in the promises of God. It's an assurance that God's promises are going to come true. He also says it's a conviction of things not seen. These Old Testament saints did not see the fulfillment of most and some of them of any of God's promises to them. But they had a conviction of the things not seen that they would be fulfilled by God. He would keep His promises to them. This is faith. Verse 2 of Hebrews 11 goes on to say, For by it, he's speaking back to faith, For by faith the people of old received their commendation. The author of Hebrews will go on to speak of this commendation as God commending these people as righteous or as justified, which means to be free from sin guilt before God's throne. Through faith, Old Testament sinners were declared righteous or guiltless by God. Their own actions could not accomplish this. But by the grace of God, He looked forward into history to the Savior who would one day die for Old Testament believers also. Based on Jesus' future sacrifice, God proclaimed those who lived by faith as righteous. 
I believe this is exactly what is happening in the garden as Adam names his wife life. By the grace of God, Adam believes the words of God, even though he could not see it being fulfilled in front of him right then. Adam names the woman life because he has the God-given, grace-driven assurance and conviction that his wife would be the mother of all living. Why did he believe that? Because God said it and he believed God's words. Eve would be the mother of every human being ever, ever born, including the one offspring who would do battle with the serpent. We learned about how God cursed the serpent and in his curse he said that the offspring of the woman would bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. And we talked about how that is a promise of the Redeemer who would come, the offspring of the woman. For this reason, I suggest to you that Adam naming his wife Eve or life, life giver, that it is a picture of God's grace. God gives grace to Adam, granting him ears to hear and eyes to see, even in the midst of rebellion. God gives grace to the woman, permitting her the joy of still bringing life into this world, even though that she had rejected his, his relational presence. And God gives grace to humanity in this picture, by promising that Eve would be the mother of the one offspring that would one day come as Savior. Adam naming his wife Eve is a picture of God's grace. Verse 21 continues on to give us our second picture of grace. God covers Adam and Eve with skins, with animal skins. Moses writes in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's important to understand that the phrase garments of skins implies that an innocent animal was killed and skinned in order to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. This must have been a traumatic experience for them both. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had only ever eaten plants. They had never eaten an animal. They had never killed an animal. They never even imagined killing an animal. They were king and queen of all the earth, but they would have never butchered an animal. The scriptures never imply that an animal had even died before the fall. So this innocent death of an animal to provide them a covering is the first biblical account of death in this world. We've become accustomed to death, especially the death of animals. But to Adam and Eve, this first death was a traumatic and vivid display of the blood price of sin. The practice of killing animals as sacrifices to God as the blood price for sin would continue for 4,000 years. And we will see this evidenced in the animal sacrifices of Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and most notably in the sacrificial system given through Moses to the people of Israel. In Leviticus 6, verse 7, God tells Moses that if an Israelite realizes he has sinned against God, 
Then he, have, then he was to bring the appropriate sacrifice to the priests. And the priests would make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is one of the foundational passages that explain the purpose for blood sacrifices of an animal. By his grace, God provided a way for sinful man to live near God as his people and then not die because of it. I mean, we've looked at how holy God is, how righteous and how sin cannot come into his presence. Like He cannot be defiled by sin because of his holiness. So God is making a way for his people to dwell near him and not die. God decreed that the death of an animal for individual sins of a person would appease his wrath. This was the grace of God towards sinful man in the Old Testament. But the author of Hebrews, this is a New Testament book looking back, the author of Hebrews reveals to us the temporary nature of animal sacrifices. What we find in the book of Hebrews is that the animals sacrificed for 4,000 years were but a shadow of what must ultimately happen for God's people to be covered, to be fully cleansed, to be free of guilt, to be clothed, and not just not to be clothed in animal skins, but to be clothed in righteousness. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but, has but a shadow of the good things to come, so he's talking about the law of Moses, which was very much encompassed by the sacrificial system and the purification and all of that. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He is saying that the law of Moses and that sacrificial system was but a shadow of the good thing to come. It is not the true form, the true form or the, the, the ultimate form of sacrifice was to come. He's saying that the sacrificial system and the blood of animals can never make perfect those who draw near to that temple. He goes on to say in verse 2, otherwise, he's, he's making a, a logical argument in verse 2, otherwise, would they, those who drew near, not have ceased, or sorry, the, the offerings, otherwise, would the offerings not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So if the, the animal sacrifices were, were effective to wash you clean, permanently, then why do they keep being sacrifices? Why is there this awareness of sin and continual sacrifices? Verse 3, he says the answer, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, they temporarily covered the sinner. Yes, they appeased the wrath of God for a season. 
but they cannot. It is impossible, the author of Hebrews says. It is impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins, to wash you white as snow. It is impossible. The sacrificial system was a reminder of sins every year and a picture of God's grace to come. Hebrews 10 verse 10 goes on to proclaim the true fulfillment of the shadow. The sacrificial system was the shadow. Animal sacrifice was the shadow. But verse 10 tells us the true fulfillment of these things, saying, by God's will, we have been sanctified or cleansed, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the true fulfillment of these things. This is what is being pictured in Genesis 3, verse 21. An innocent creature pays the blood price for Adam and Eve's sin. And an innocent creature provides them a covering for their guilt. Adam and Eve could not provide this sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice. In His grace, God strikes down the innocent creature. God spills its blood on the ground. God strips the animal skin from its body. And God covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. God did this. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness on their own. They took leaves from a tree as a harmless way of fixing their shame. There's no pain, no sacrifice, no cost necessary in the way that they attempted to cover their shame. But God rejected their attempts to restore themselves. And God gave them a glimpse of the true cost of redemption. The cost that He would ultimately provide. Years later, God would again reveal the principle to His people that He must provide the sacrifice. In Genesis verse, uh, chapter 22, we read of Abraham's test of faith and how God commanded Abraham saying, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. Abraham obeys God, rising early in the morning, taking his son to the mountain, and he is prepared to obey God. But Isaac calls out to his father saying, as, he's, as they're approaching the mountain, he says, We have the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This is what Isaac says to his father. Abraham responds to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Amen. And that's exactly what God does. God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and provides a ram in his place. Genesis 22 verse 14 tells us this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's Genesis 22 verse 14. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Not by human beings, but by God. From Genesis 3 until today, God has declared that we cannot cleanse ourselves of sins. We cannot cover our own guilt. 
God must provide. And 2,000 years ago, He did provide. He did provide. The body of Jesus Christ was sacrificed once for all, for all those who would believe on His name. And now, we are clothed. Those who have believed on His name are clothed, but not in animal skins which can only cover shame. No, we are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27 tells us this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have believed and have obeyed Him in baptism, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We have been clothed in Him, in His righteousness. And in Isaiah 61, verse 10, we read a prophetic word about the Messiah and what He will accomplish for His people. This is the same passage of Scripture that Jesus stood up in front of a crowd of Jews in a synagogue and read before them and sat down and said, This has been fulfilled today in your hearing, saying that He had come to fulfill this. This is the same chapter. We read this in verse 10. The writer is praising the Lord, saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He's clothed me in righteousness. This is fulfilled through Jesus Christ for all those who believe. God covering Adam and Eve with animal skins is a picture of His grace that would come. His grace that would provide the sacrifice and His grace that will clothe His people in robes of righteousness. Looking again at our passage, verses 22 through 24 give us our third and final picture of grace. Exiling or God exiling sinners. Verse 22 gives us the purpose for Adam and Eve's exile. God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And the verse abruptly ends. This verse depicts God deliberating with himself. And I believe, I believe this is a reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conversing with one another. But it is also possible that the angelic hosts of heaven were the ones God is speaking to either way. God says that mankind has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. This shows that the serpent's statements to Eve contain some truth. But they were only half-truths. We saw previously how Adam and Eve did gain the knowledge of good and evil. Their knowledge was like God's knowledge in that sense. They did gain something they didn't have before, but they had been deceived. Because instead of becoming the autonomous rulers over this knowledge or who wielded this knowledge of good and evil, instead of that, they had become helpless slaves to their knowledge of evils. They were now in bondage to their knowledge of evil. They were doomed to sin, destined to pursue what they knew to be evil in God's sight. 
Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 describes the natural condition of mankind after the fall. Describing to the church what they had been saved from, Paul writes this to the Ephesians saying, verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, he's talking about Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, everyone outside of Christ. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. He's talking about God's wrath on the children of this world. Finishing with saying, we were children by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, there was instant spiritual death. Paul says that we all enter life spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. This is the condition of every human being who is born into this world, save one who is born of the Virgin Mary. So God, seeing this, knowing this, God in His wisdom and in His grace, He restrains mankind's ability to bring further harm on themselves by denying them access to the tree of life. Because this tree of life would have brought them continual life in this broken world. It would have doomed them to live as broken creatures in a broken world indefinitely. Is death a terrible consequence of man's sin? Yes, it is a terrible consequence. But is death also God's grace to broken humanity? Yes, it is. You may ask, how could death be grace? Well, I'd suggest to a rebellious sinner, the sentence of death calls them to look to God, the only one who can give life. The inescapable sentence of death over every human being is a powerful call to repentance. And that is God's grace, that He would call sinners at all. To the forgiven believer, to God's children, death, in God's timing, according to His will, brings an end to all our pain and suffering and ushers us instantly into our Lord's presence. Death is both the consequence of sin. Man, Adam and Eve and the serpent meant it for evil what they did. But even in death, God brings forth His grace and He brings good from it. Both a call to repentance and the relief for His saints of pain from pain. This is God's grace toward broken humanity. Now, verses 23 through 24 are where the third picture of grace, where God exiles sinners, where this, this picture of grace begins to take shape as a major theme in the story of redemption. Verse 23 says, The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He drove them out. He, he exiled them. 
The Garden of Eden represents God's relational presence here on earth. We've already seen that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. This was the place where Adam was able to dwell with God. But because of sin, man was driven out of the garden. They were separated from the life-sustaining presence of God. They could not enter back into the garden on their own. God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that would apparently strike down anyone who attempted to force their way back in. God had closed the door to His relational presence, and only God could open that door again. We see glimpses of God cracking open the door to His presence, to His holy relational presence in the stories of the patriarchs. There were moments when they experienced His presence and spoke with Him. Then the Scriptures describe how God directs the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple, and then later the temple in Jerusalem, all so that His people could come closer to Him. If you study the construction of the tabernacle and the temple, it is plain that they were designed to represent the Garden of Eden. They were designed to point Israel to look back to what the garden was like. The place of God's relational presence. That's what they were supposed to represent. So if an Israelite approached God at the temple in the right way, after the necessary steps of purification and sacrifice, then they could get closer to God. But it was a far cry from the deeply personal relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden. And ultimately, just like Adam and Eve, God's people rebelled against God, rejected His relational presence, and then were exiled from the land of promise. They were driven out from the land that was supposed to be like the Garden of Eden with God's relational presence dwelling at the Temple of Jerusalem. So please notice with me the theme that's being developed here throughout the Old Testament. The theme of humanity's exile from the Garden of God's presence. First, God creates the opportunity for relationship in the Garden of Eden. It's an opportunity to know God and to dwell with God. But Adam and Eve reject that relationship and are driven out or exiled. Then God also created the opportunity for relationship with Israel. But they also rejected that relationship and are driven out or exiled from Jerusalem. The biblical theme being developed throughout the Old Testament is that humanity has failed to enter back into the garden of God's relational presence. They have failed. Years later, Israel is brought back to the promised land and Jerusalem and the temple are rebuilt. But once again, Israel as a nation does not desire personal relationship with God and they find themselves oppressed by Roman occupiers. This is where the New Testament begins, and we open our Bibles to the Gospels. Israel is on the brink of being exiled again. One, one more revolt, one more rebellion, one more assassination from a Jewish zealot of some high-ranking uh, Roman official is all it would have taken for Rome to bring its fists down on Jerusalem and crush them and exile them again by God's power. 
But onto this stage walks the God-man Jesus. And he begins declaring things like, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is what he says. And he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus comes declaring to Israel that he is the way back to the Father. Jesus arrives declaring that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that he is the way back to the garden of God's relational presence with his people. He is the way into God's garden. And how would he accomplish this? How did Jesus pay the blood price for rebels and sinners? How did he save his people from eternal exile and bring them into the presence of God? How did he accomplish this? Isaiah 53 verse 6 prophesies about how he did this. It says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the guilt of us all. God has laid on Jesus the guilt of us all. Jesus bore the punishment for us our sins. And may I suggest to you that the picture is that he was exiled for us. He was driven out for us. We deserve to be driven out of Jerusalem. God's city. We deserve to be driven out of Jerusalem with a cross on our backs. But instead, He, Jesus, was exiled outside the city of God in our place. He bore our shame, He bore our guilt, and He suffered outside the gates of Jerusalem, the city where God's presence dwelt. Hebrews 13, 12 speaks to this saying, Jesus suffered outside the gate. He's talking about the gates of Jerusalem, God's garden city. That's what it was supposed to be. It says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. God exiling sinners all the way back in Genesis 3 is a picture of His grace to come. Because one day Jesus would be exiled in the place of His people. This exiled condition of Christ outside the gate, it didn't last for eternity. We know that He died, was buried, and then rose again victorious. He did not stay in the grave. He did not stay with the sins of the world on his shoulders. But he died, was buried, and rose again. He now sits with the Father at the right hand of the Father. And what is interesting is that we no longer have to look to a physical place to dwell with God. We're, not, we're no longer looking to Jerusalem for the presence of of God. Throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus spoke of his body being the temple. 
He says, destroy this temple and in three days I shall raise it up. Implying that God, the Spirit, the presence of God was in Him. And now, all those who believe are said to be in Christ. And now He has sent His Spirit to dwell where? Not in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus says He's going to send His Spirit to dwell in His people. He calls our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so now we do not have to run to Jerusalem to have an experience with God. He says that God, the Spirit, dwells in you. You dwell with the Lord. Even here on earth we get to experience this. And we, yes, are one day looking forward to experiencing it ultimately with glorified bodies in a world that is no longer broken in the garden of God and in His presence. So what should we do now? With all these pictures of grace, with the knowledge that Christ is the one offspring of the woman, He is the life giver. We have the picture of God's grace where we saw that He shed His blood and He became the covering or the robes of righteousness. And now we have seen this last point, how He was exiled for us outside the gate. And what does the author of Hebrews call the children of God to do now? What should Christians do now? He says in Hebrews 13, verse 13, He says, Therefore, since He has suffered outside the gate, He's he's talking about Christ has suffered outside the gate for us. He says, Therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the camp, outside the city of Jerusalem, and bear the reproach He endured. Verse 14, For here we have no lasting city on this earth. We have, for here, He's talking about on this earth, in this life, we have no lasting city. It's not Jerusalem. But we seek the city that is to come. Verse 15. Through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, he's going to explain. What is a sacrifice of praise? He says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Lips that acknowledge His name, that praise Him. Lives that worship Him as our treasure. The thing we treasure above all else, whether it be life or death, our cars or houses, or the job we want, whatever it might be, may we go outside the camp with Him. May we suffer reproach with Him in this life. May our lips be lips that speak the words of praise to Him. May we suffer reproach with Jesus. May we acknowledge His name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that Your words reveal who You are and what You have done and are doing and will do in the earth and in heaven. I pray, Father, that no one here today would leave with a mind filled with biblical religious ideas but who never made that journey where the knowledge impacted their heart 
and cause them to value you, to treasure you above all things. Would no one leave here today like in that condition? I pray for this church. Lord, I know you love your church. You love your church more than any man or woman ever could. I pray that you would grow us in maturity, in the depths of our love for you, and that you would grow us in number so that your kingdom can grow for your glory and for the joy of your people, that we would get to see and witness what you are doing in the earth. Thank you, Father. Amen.